if you remember a poem, you possess it. You, you remember it wholly. Um, to recall a poem is the poem. And in kind of burning itself into your neural circuitry, it's become quite literally part of your being. And because of this strange and, and near-magical property, the poem has uh, inevitably tended to valorize and sometimes even fetishize those techniques and devices uh, that it uses to make itself uh, memorizable and memorable. The most powerful uh, mnemonic devices are brief speech, pattern speech, and original speech, as far as I'm concerned. Um, there may be a slide. There is a slide. It's got nothing on it yet. Um, brevity of speech is, is poems, uh, a, a, a poem's most basic formal strategy. Original speech is its most basic literary virtue. Uh, and I think pattern speech is the most basic identifying feature. Um, the mere act of making brief speech often produces both original and pattern speech. The, f the first, uh, by expedient necessity, and the latter, pattern speech, by something like physical law. I mean, I have a formula in my head which is language under the pressure of time and emotional heat results in poetry. Uh, that's to say, it then language then reveals its kind of intimate uh, pattern and structure and grain uh, when you have shortness of time, emotional heat. Um, on the tiny planet of uh, the poem itself, there may be all manner of awful excursions and diversions and deadlines and what have you, the better to disguise its artifice and time its effects. But most poems these days are generally uh, sworn to say what they have to say in as few words as possible. Um, brief, original and pattern speech all arise uh, from um, uh, the act of composition, in which we employ them as deliberate strategies. You should maybe look at some of those, really, shouldn't I? Just since I did go to the trouble of putting up some examples. Brief speech, here's a rather fine poem by Alexander Scott. Uh, Scotch poets, was the tether? That just means, who's the other one? Um, uh, he's not talking about Robert Burns, he's speaking about uh, Alexander Scott, uh, or, in, uh, or in my case, me. Um, it's a terrible attitude Scottish poets have, there should only be one. It's a, we're a bit like aphorists in that regard. Mm -hmm. um, Pattern speech, uh, there's a bit of pattern, if you don't think that's pattern, I don't know what you're looking for, it's a bit of Hopkins, but the one over. Two patterns for my liking. Um, maybe this is a time to confess I'm not a huge fan. Um, but uh, it tends patterning of the, uh, of the, the sound that, that we think of Hopkins, that you recognise as something uh, poetic. Um, original speech, um, wow, look at that. Um, there's a wee bit of Yeats, uh, and that line, of course, that astonishing line, uh, uh, that dolphin-torn, that gong-tormented sea. But a friend of mine, uh, Ian Dewey, rewrote in an even more original fashion. Um, there won't be too many of this sort of thing. Uh, that, <laughs> that golfing torn that dong-tormented sea, which I think is a, an exquisite revision. Um, do laugh hard, that's the last one for a while, I'm telling you. It's just, um, <laughs> So, uh, our brevity has ach achieved the usual ways with the usual tropes of contraction. That's elision uh, 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 and metonymy, principally, I think. Uh, patterning by the kind of parallel schemes of, of, uh, of form and line and syntax and sound patterning uh, uh, and, and meter, of course. Our originality is achieved through the various tropes of, of comparison and, and uh, substitution, like symbol and uh, metaphor. Um, the composition of reality for a poet is the three are really indistinguishable, and they're all uh, part of the same process. Poets force themselves into brief speech as you'd expect by limiting the time and space in which they have to complete that speech. This really constitutes the most basic definition of form. Uh, as Raymond Chandler says, there's no art without the resistance of the form. Have I had any sense of what we've got? No, it doesn't. It's all coming in the wrong order. There we go. Um, no art without the resistance of the form. Um, wh what I take by this is actually that uh, form for a poet prevents you from saying the thing you wanted to uh, and forces you to say something else. And the something else is always better than the thing that you want to say, uh, it turns out. The poem is really shaped by a uh, kind of oppressive silence. I always think it was kind of rectilinear. Um, there's a vertical axis of the poem and stanza length itself, and there's the horizontal axis of delineation. And under this kind of pressure, the poem's compelled to make original speech through just being forced to choose their words with the utmost economy. 
stanzas, for example, are a way of kind of uh, uh, identifying the episodic rhythm of the poem, you know, of your own storytelling, your own argument making. And once that kind of rough wavelength is established, these little finite rooms of stanzas can be furnished appropriately, uh, and redundancy and relevancy will be far more quickly detected than if you try and write it in a big watch. Uh, what looks like merely a kind of a, a, you know, an episodic division for the reader, for the poet, is its most basic editorial device. Uh, it chucks stuff out. It doesn't allow you the room to put everything you wanted in. Um, and as Brodsky says, you can, as you can see here, poetry amounts to arranging words with the greatest specific gravity in the most effective and externally inevitable sequence. And it's a superb formula. Um, the common diagnosis that a poem is under pressure usually means that its elements aren't unified by the theme, the relationships are diffuse, they're underdeveloped. Uh, and many poems just leave you with the impression that the rooms are too empty somehow. Uh, or, the, or the converse is true. There are poets, I'm not naming any names. Um, if I had another drink, I probably would. But anyway, uh, there are other poets who's cl who clutter the rooms with so many exquisite tall boys and ottomans and escritoires. Um, the reader has no way of walking between them and is often left kind of standing at the door like a guy outside a, an antique shop you can't afford to enter. Um, the sense of inferiority that these poets tend to instill in the readers often leads us to be too damn easy on them, frankly. Um, moving on before I get even more bitchy. Soon in its composition, the poem, uh, I think, starts to get filled with what you'd call symptomatic artifacts. Brevity results in calculated elisions, contractions, discontinuities. Uh, we rely on our reader, as I talked about on Tuesday, to make things up through active inference. Uh, and make up the gap, the gap between our carefully delineated context and the things we kind of half say within them. Originality leaves all these rhetorical and syntactic innovations and its tropes and its imaginative leaps. Patterning leaves all its parallel effects of lineation and rhyme and stanza and what have you, continental echo. Um, all this leaves us uh, is with a, a text that's um, often identifiable a, by a poem, uh, as a poem, by its brazen lack of self-explanation, by its original phrase-making uh, and its formal shape. Uh, if we were to try and read the text as a piece of normal prose, if you like, uh, or in the frame of a conversational uh, speech, we'd identify these, these particular features as discontinuous and alien and artificial. But the contract of poetry is that we agree to see them uh, as natural, as none of those things, as a wholly natural language game in which poet and reader collude. Um, however, the poem must be identifiable as such for this wee game to begin. And uh, as Hope uh, I've made clear now, uh, the poem, as far as I'm concerned, is as much a mode of reading as it is of writing. The reader must know they're reading a poem to read it as a poem and apply all the remarkable human powers of signification and connection. Uh, you know, and in the pursuit of aesthetic naturalism, as I said, some of the most artful poems have the habit of disguising themselves as far simpler statements than they really are. Uh, and any reader who isn't reading such a poem in, a, in an over-signifying mode, that's the state of the poetry reader, compared to paranoia already, uh, will likely miss the best of that poem. Uh, well, I think of a poem, for example, like William Carlos Williams, um, This Is Just to Say. You know that poem? I wonder about the plums. How's it going again? Um, I did write it in. I have eaten the plums that were in the icebox and which you were probably saving for breakfast. Forgive me, they were delicious, so sweet and so cold. The Scottish poet Tom Leonard wrote a version with six cans of tenant special, which is identical to that. I drank a special that you were hiding back for the party, and so on. You know? uh, it's it's uh, much the same point. Um, you could easily read it, nonetheless, as a, as a note left on a kitchen table, because it's written just as if it were one. But you'd be missing uh, uh, quite a lot. Well, a fair bit, I think. Something to, I think there's less to a poem than meets the eye. I mean, another poem of Carlos Williams, um, which I don't think is much called. Sorry, I put the bouncy thing. I don't know why I keep doing that. Um, here we go. Uh, so much depends uh, upon a red wheelbarrow glazed with rain water beside the white chickens. As far as I'm concerned, it's not really a poem but a manifesto. It's a good manifesto, but I don't think it's a great poem. I think its status is a great poem. It contains, not uncontroversially, depends on our agreement to find a great poem here. Um, my dear late friend Michael Donaghy used to do a, a, an introduction to this poem. I used to pretend that uh, Carlos Williams was introducing this poem in the endless, redundant style of the great British poetry reading. You know? 
Uh, and he'd say, you know, it's, uh, this next point's about a wheelbarrow. I'd like to, you know, with better saw once. You know, it was wet. It'd been raining all the afternoon, actually, and there were some chickens. Uh, and I remember feeling at the time, I don't know, uh, that I, like, somehow a lot depended on it. I don't know if you people hear that <laughs> And so on, you know, and it went on. Um, there may be less, <laughs> can I propose here, than meets the eye. Um, but humans, no doubt, in the, the act of vital compensation for the habit of categorization, you know, the fragmented perceptions that we bring to the world, were incorrigible dot joiners, and will connect any two unrelated things that you care to, to throw at us. Um, I think this is neatly demonstrated in that old workshop game that a noun is uh, randomly given the, the definition of a completely different one, um, which I may have done. Did I? Um, we can almost invariably uh, make things fit. Um, so basically you get people to write your definitions and swap them all around. Um, but we can make things fit by sort of ransacking the noun's internal uh, uh, properties, its aspects and relations, until we've found points of coincidence or, 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 or imaginative correspondence between them. And it transpires, you know, that a keyhole is, in a sense, a square box in which one watches moving pictures, or a TV is a wooden or plastic receptacle in which we place rubbish, which indeed it is. The mouse is a, a, a leap. I accept, um, uh, you know, and so on. But it's a fun game, but it does tell you something about who we are, which we're creatures of connection. Um, I think, it, you know, the fact that the possibility can be entertained, uh, I think, is interesting. And it also shows us, too, that the imagination is not uh, a negligible reality. Um, well, what's astonishing for me is the extent to which this process is instinctive and instantaneous. Uh, and the extent to which everything appears to be secretly connected. Poets take advantage of, uh, of this innate facility by prompting or initiating just such a game of connect and present the reader with elements that, on a casual glance, seem only indirectly related or not related at all or simply puzzling. For some reason, I put all the slides at the start of the lecture and not at the end at all, which is slightly bizarre, I've just noticed, but there we go. Um, like, for example, uh, th this is a classic sort of instance of, of, of uh, statement and distance. If anyone's ever done a workshop with me, they will have seen this point before, but you may not have. Um, it's uh, again by uh, uh, my late uh, dead friend. I don't know why people should stop being your friends just because they're dead. That always struck me as deadest, you know? It just means the conversation gets a bit one-sided. So, um, the existentially disadvantaged, should we call them? Michael <laughs> so here you go. Um, I am the book you'll never read that carry forever. One blunt page, darling, is my daughter's lover. You already know two thirds by heart, and I'm passing waiting for a walk so short. It's a fine opportunity to put yourself a drink while you think about it. Um, so, does anyone know it? Did anyone immediately get what the uh, the answer to the riddle is? There's no point you putting your hand in, I know you know it. <laughs> anyone other than that man in the middle? You can yell out. Sorry? Oh, it took me six months. Um, it is indeed a gravestone. Uh, it really did take me that long, I'm ashamed to say. But again, the part of the the the, uh, the joy here is that the gap is what happens in the slippage. It's making up the distance, um, uh, and that's the, the the nature of the riddle. Um, or when you describe one thing as something else, it's a metaphor with a, a ten on this one. Um, you'll never read the book. Why? We've oh, got a gravestone here. But carry forever, well, you know, because you'll be underneath it. One blunt page, garlanded by daughter or lover, who bring um, flowers to the, the graveside. You already know two thirds by heart, which of course is your name and your date of birth. And I'm passing weighty for a walk so short. So it's a fine little point that does the job, I think, of, of making us think again about a familiar object in the world, which, as they say, is something that poetry can do. Um, like an epitaph, a formal pattern <clears throat> most often supplies a powerful typographical advertisement for the poem. Uh, and what it kind of advertises most conspicuously is that this is a piece of text that's not taken up the whole page and therefore considers itself rather important. Um, the white space around the poem, or indeed the epitaph, becomes a kind of potent symbol of the poem's significant intent and prompt uh, over-signifying uh, faculty. Um, I think this white space is both literally and symbolically equivalent to silence. Silence is the poet's uh, ground. I think that's what we work with. That's why 
nothing really works most of the time in poetry. Silence delineates the formal borders of the poem, and the formal arrangement of silences puts the language under pressure. Uh, silence, both invoked and symbolized by this white page, uh, and specifically directed by the gaps left by lineation and stanza and the poem itself, underwrites the status of the poem as significant mark. Um, this mark explicitly invites the reader to attend to the poem in such a way as it permits the full resonant potential of the words that we use, uh, both acoustically and semantically, uh, as a voice word within an auditorium. Uh, in doing so, I think it also declares our master trope, which I always think is synecdoche. You know what that means. It's just a form of metonymy. It's not a trope in its own right. It's a form of metonymy that is the part for a whole. Uh, a small thing that stands for a big thing. Uh, a, a, a generic truth that's, that's defined by a piece of specific evidence. Uh, a, a, you know, the global principle represented by a local bylaw. That's all I mean by synecdoche. A wee thing. Uh, that stands for a big thing. Um, I think most poetry operates under this kind of understanding. It's the silence that prompts it. Young kids understand it's a wee thing. It stands for a big thing. Um, it's the acoustic space in which I think the poem makes its large echoes. I think you want to test this out. One way to do it is just to write a single noun on a sheet of uh, a paper and kind of stare at it. Um, I think you sort of note the, uh, the superior attendance that you suddenly have to the words now that it's surrounded by white space and who insists on it. You know, it sort of draws out its ramifying sense potential. You suddenly look at its calligraphic mark. You attend to the, the, uh, the, the sound of the word in a way you, you hadn't before. I think effectively you now read the word as a poem. Um, since it's silence that lends poems a significant look and quietly begins this prompting of the reader to begin their act of signification, poets go to great lengths to summon and honour the silence with bold and discreet sounds. I think that's how they almost invoke it. But you spoil it with extraneous chatter, basically, and inadvertent repetition, irrelevant information, superfluous qualifiers, nervous chit-chat, noise, basically. Um, the ground of the silence is stained, and the sense of the word as distinct acoustic event is wrecked, and all subtle kind of lyric pattern is suddenly inaudible. I think what's... I want to see here is the transmissionary medium. The, the way that you conduct a poem uh, is the same as music. It's air and it's silence, even if it just exists in your imagination. You have to hear it hit the air. And we disturb that air out of peril. Um, in, in the same way you wouldn't wreck the air in a concert hall, you wouldn't do it in a poem. I think what's often forgotten, I should throw in though, is that, that, that music is a, uh, that poetry is a meta art. Um, and it relies on non-physical structures too. It's not just like music, which is just about air and uh, uh, sound waves. Um, in poetry's case, it relies on the structure of language for its effects. That's to say grammar and syntax and logical continuity. And these together also form a kind of conducting medium through which these deep meanings of ours are hopefully broadcast. It's a complex issue. It's not a trivial one. But essentially, if the poem starts to destroy or undermine the structure of language itself. It can do this up to a point, you know, but if it does it too much, it really does, I feel, become the equivalent of starting up an outboard motor in the concert hall, uh, because language is also part of the conducting medium. It's not just silence. Um, so essentially what I'm saying is poetic form is a kind of codified pattern of silence, and the semantic weight of the poem when you write one tends to weirdly, naturally distribute itself according to, to that pattern. A special attention to the ends of things, to the ends of lines. Thinks about the words that are going to resonate into that little empty stairwell at the end of the line, you know, or that connecting passageway at the end of the stanza with the big church at the end of the poem itself. Think very carefully about what to put in those positions. Um, these silences basically are where the interesting stuff tends to bunch up uh, and takes advantage of the, of the acoustic salience that they enjoy in that position. Um, and with which the, uh, the natural closures of our phrases tend to coincide. The whole page is also a sign to the reader that our poems were really won from silence too and drawn out of it. When we went to that kind of as yet, um, this is getting a bit mystical, isn't it? Unconsonated uh, breath of our own inspiration and try to do what poets do, which is articulate the inarticulable. 
You know, there's beyond words, relations, and qualia, and feelings and ideas. And then you, you get something for nothing, you get granted a few strange words that seem to adhere to them. Hence the strangeness of the speech, however. So unable to either invent a new language or uh, resort to pure music, a glossolalia, our words are forced into original combinations. But it still maybe appear too alien if they weren't unified by something extra. Um, syntax is not enough. We also need song. We also need a lyric strategy. And we turn naturally, I think, towards music as a kind of an intercessory channel between the familiar and the strange and use it to bind the weird sense of poems with a, a pervasive strength that syntax alone can't lend them. Now, what this is, uh, bear with me in this bit, please. Uh, yeah, deliberate blank um, slide here. What the silence itself invokes is, uh, and probably really should remain, is a, is a matter of personal conviction. For me, anyway, the silence seems to stand for a realm of perception where all things are connected as they were from our very early childhood. Before the fall into time and into category, uh, a fall brutally reinforced by the acquisition of language, I think, Without making a distinction, as I believe we didn't initially, between self and other, between mother and breast, between sky and air, um, without that kind of clear differentiation of things, there can be no proper experience of the temporal or causal sequence, um, so we had a different perception of the passing of time. Um, this place of infinite connection, I think, still exists, like a kind of operating system in which the more recently acquired software of perceptual category and language rest. Um, and poetry is one means, I think art is generally, but poetry is one means by which we can still access it. Our poetic meditations allow us to enter a space where new and original connections can be forged beyond language, uh, and there they find a linguistic inc incarnation at its very limits. Um, however, the return from speech from silence is a fraught business, and I think maybe echoes in some ways our original fall from pre-consciousness into consciousness and speechless consciousness into language acquisition itself, and a consequent eruption of the unconscious, and this is where poetry comes in, into language. Um, so I think poetry kind of links the two up. Now, I will say uh, with some apology, firstly, that the approach I have to this stuff is derived in part... Um, or rather heavily, from the work of a Chilean uh, psychoanalyst called Ignacio Matlonco. Uh, and the second bit I'd like to say is the next five minutes may be no fun, okay? Um, but it's, it's, kind of, it's not exactly work in progress, but it probably is. Uh, but I'm not entirely uh, in full uh, possession of the facts here myself, but this is uh, something I'm working through. Let me try and explain it to you. Um, Matlonco proposed that the unconscious was um, structured by two principles, okay? Um, doesn't he look like Martin Scorsese? Incredible. Just a cut in. Firstly, there's a principle of generalization. Now, that says that unconscious logic doesn't take account of individuals as such. By individuals, he means distinct things. Um, it deals with them only as members of classes or as classes of classes. In other words, the unconscious just thinks in sets. Secondly, the principle of symmetry, which says that the unconscious can treat the converse of any relation as identical to it. That is, it deals with relationships as symmetrical. Unlike the workings of the conscious ego, in other words, the unconscious doesn't deal with instance, it only understands sets, um, nor relation, nor asymmetrical relation. If a relation exists, its direction is reversible for the unconscious and its agents are interchangeable. So uh, if differences between things can't be acknowledged, you can't have chronology, you can't have causality, and you really can't have sequence. So that doesn't really work for the unconscious, is what he's saying. So in other words, what X did to Y, Y also did to X. If I hate someone, someone also hates me, or something hates me. If a cat knocks over a vase, the vase is already broken before the cat knocks it over. If it's happening tomorrow, it's also happening right now, and it happened yesterday, as far as the unconscious is concerned. Um, now, if the unconscious functions as a serious uh, influence in the composition of good poetry, as I think it does, um, Matt Blanco may have partly explained the psychological origins of this holy formula I've, I've written out at the, uh, the bottom here, of Jakobson's, which is the nearest we have in poetry to something like a unified field theory at the moment, but we keep going back to this. So, Barely understood. The poetic function projects the principle of equivalence from the axis of selection 
into the axis of combination, which is something that I'll try and unpack quite quickly in a minute. It's not quite as bad as it or forbidding as it appears. Um, the, uh, the principle of generalization, I think, erodes this thing about the axis of selection. The axis of selection really depends. Uh, th there's only basically two things going on in our brains. There's the axis of there's paradigm and syntax. Axis of selection and rule. Um, the axis of selection depends on family resemblances between things you can remember. So in the case of a menu, uh, the axis of selection allows you to choose between different desserts because they all have this, shape, this same shared property of sweetness. So you can relate them together in that way. And it allows you to go, I don't want the pavlova, I'll have the ice cream if you don't mind. Whereas if you say, you know, I don't want the ice cream, I'll have the kippers, it's, it means your paradigm is bust. You know, your brain is bust. So that's basically your axis of, of, of selection. I want you to, to compare things. Versus uh, the principle of symmetry, um, in the case of the unconscious, erodes Jakobson's uh, axis of combination. Now, the axis of combination is syntax. And that's arbitrary rule. That's any arbitrary rule by which you link things together. In the case of a menu, it's the order of uh, the courses. So it goes starter, main course, pudding. There's no goddamn reason why that should be the case. You could have them in any order, but we agree this is the way that you do it. So that's the rule. Now, again, uh, the unconscious is going to erode that connection because it doesn't distinguish between those components in that way. And it doesn't have sequence. So it destroys these two things. So what Jakob is saying is the vertical axis of the paradigm which works on the principles connecting to the family of identity, is projected in poetry into the horizontal axis of the syntam. That's the sentence, basically, in our case, which works on the principle of connecting things by arbitrary rule, by which he means syntax. Yeah. So in poetry, we see the syntam of the sentence suddenly populated by pattern and parallel effect. And what I have here, again, is just that bit of Hawkins, and you see it's pattern to hell, much more so than you would normally see in a piece of prose. And that's all he means by that. Suddenly, we see things that are similar populate the syntax, you know, and link things together. So all of a sudden, you get a conflation of the two axes. Um, so my own position is that because of the function of the unconscious, the poetic function is really a collapse and a conflation of both axes. Um, and while it's probably unfalsifiable, I think, you know, Blanco's hypothesis would explain this perfectly. This is because the poet is engaged in a partly unconscious act, something really a, a closely analogous to trying to remember a poem that they've forgotten. Very similar to that. Um, while all poetic devices serve to kind of increase this memorability of the poem for the reader, the play in the morning role, in other words, in addition to any other purpose they might have, for the poet, the function is weirdly inverted. But the very means, the very intuitive tools, and I mean things like meter and rhyme, uh, by which the poem is drawn forth from the mind. They're how you remember it. I've talked about the poem before as a little machine for remembering itself. It's doing exactly that. It's conjuring itself from nothing. All the tropes and schemes that help us achieve a brevity and originality and patterning, in a sense, are really just as much aid memoirs to the poet as they are to the reader. Uh, their experiences are weirdly mirrored. They're not mere effects, in other words, all this technique, but the very engine of poetic composition itself. So for the poet, the good poem has a certainty of a thing recalled as true. And they labor towards this final poem as they do towards a true thing, an indelible memory. Um, a good poem has the inevitability of a, of a true memory, and it's hard to conceive of the world having been without it. Which is why I often suspect my best lines of having been stolen. You know, it's just when you get a good line, I immediately Google it. I actually immediately find it was written by Seamus Heaney, um, and then rewrite it. Um, but it, but it's but you suspect it immediately because it seems to fit. Um, even though, as we know, in the poetic uh, uh, <laughs> act, much is left behind at the border or handed over at customs, and too many trips involve this kind of empty-handed return. Uh, as we know, what happened here. Funny caption. There you go. You got to try. Um, and there's uh, we we know exactly what uh, happened there. You don't always get to bring back what you what you thought. I don't think Orpheus was quite as empty-handed as he thought he was, though. Um, I have this theory that um, he was actually ditching Eurydice, and the whole thing was uh, they didn't really. It was entirely deliberate. Why would you look back? 
you know. I think he was a classic singer-songwriter who was really wedded to his guitar more than his girlfriend. Um, because this is uh, the, the guy, unfortunately, I think, um, poets are paradoxically experts in the failure of language, uh, and they tend to be disappointed souls, you know, having so much tantalizingly direct experience of what could have been expressed, and so little of what actually was. Their medium is failure. Words fail us uh, continually. Um, but something else locks in this silence, you know. I think it's, you know, Wittgenstein's that of which we cannot speak, we must pass over. Um, many poets, I think, have a deep-seated worry about the extent to which the, uh, how can I put it, the perceptual user interface of uh, or preferences of the human uh, limit and distort our experience of reality and the consequent unreliable nature of much of our thought in this universe. I think poetry is one of the means by which we correct the main tool of that thought, language, for the worst of its anthropic distortions. Um, I think it's language's self-corrective function and everywhere challenges this kind of categorizing Adamite inheritance of ours, this naming habit of ours, this fragmenting design uh, through the insistence on a counterbalancing project, which is one of singing, one of lyric unity. Um, and I think what we call poetry is really only a cultural salience. It's just built into language like the endocrine system, uh, poetry. So I think if we remember that all the light that we supposedly shed in the universe is of a hopelessly human hue, we can compensate for its narrow spectrum and accept the partiality of what it reveals. And one way of doing this is to sing the, uh, the larger unity of which we ourselves are merely a, a, you know, a small part. Um, now, if I can turn now to the, the, the business of racket uh, and noise. Um, I, I just, I'd say just on the whole, it's not always true, that poetry proceeds from a, a generous instinct uh, and not a selfish one, or that it should do. And whatever inner private tensions might have been assuaged in her writing, uh, you want to give these damn things away in the end, I think, you know. Um, to have someone else want your poem for themselves, I think it has to be desirable to them to some extent. Um, to be desirable, I think it has to be beautiful in the broadest sense of the word. Uh, and I think to be beautiful, this is controversial, it must exhibit some of the uh, symmetry of form and organization that we find in the natural world. Now, this is a bit of a leap, I know, uh, and it's as old school as it, uh, as it comes, of course. I mean, uh, it's been a cliche since Plato and Aristotle to say that uh, the reason we find a piece of art satisfying is because it's imitative of nature in some way. Uh, but I do still tend to think of a poem as a kind of man-made natural object, and, you know, our best effort, something we can quietly slip, slip back into the world without the world noticing, you know, to which it can make no serious objection. Um, sometimes misused, though, the occasional use of the word organic poetry, I hear this more and more, uh, for free verse is just uh, substituting an error, I think, and a pretty stupid one for a misnomer, because, you know, in the, in the organic symmetry is everywhere. Um, once freed from every aspect of formal patterning, a, a, a poem might be organic, but only like some kind of diseased uh, amoeba. I have a picture of a diseased amoeba. There's one. Um, this is a terrible picture of a Harry Crosby. Um, there's a wonderful uh, biography of Harry Crosby, though. He was a, he was a really terrible poem and a tragic figure. And your heart goes out to him, but a deluded nincompoop from the upper classes. Um, but do look up uh, uh, Black Sun is the name of the biography. Wonderful, hilarious book. But Monty Python. Anyway, and here's the amoeba over here. And you can see the broad resemblance between the two. So I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> they do more than point it out here. I saw a better defense of that faith-based, you know, free verse Laurentian, uh, you know, uh, uh, thing. Well, there's a, a Laurentian argument actually is that it better imitates the shape of spontaneous thought. Um, but even this tends to ignore the fact that, you know, uh, thought itself is highly rhythmic, and, and secondly, that spontaneous thoughts are often the most stupid we have, um, and often, certainly, the least original. Um, I think the flash of inspiration, you know, has given spontaneity a very bad name. Um, now, uh, poetry is often compared to music, but most of the comparisons tend to be a wee bit facile, and, and, and a lot of them are just plain false. I think it's, in one way, they're, they're quite closely analogous. Um, we might, I think, consensually define music as those, uh, 
noises that we agree constitute um, emotionally satisfying uh, arrangements of, of, uh, of sound and meaningful arrangements of sound. Is that uncontroversial enough? I hope so. Um, when we examine such noises and look at the way um, in which one note event follows another, we find a really amazing thing. This is just a recent discovery. And it's the sequence patterns uh, in music converge on the same statistics. It's a fractal statistic. I mean, don't ask me to explain it. I barely understand it. I know it's to do with that, uh, you know, uh, power uh, density. But it's the 1 over F uh, ratio of spectral density. That's it. Uh, but, it's, but it's this particular kind of um, relationship between events, which is a mixture of correlated and uncorrelated, that we find in, in natural uh, and stable uh, dynamic systems. Everything from quasar emissions to river discharge to you know, financial institutions, mental states even, traffic flow, sunspots, uh, uh, DNA sequences, we find the same bizarre uh, uh, signature that we call uh, pink noise. Now, pink noise lies somewhere between white noise. You'll be more familiar with that. That's just that shh sound that you get off, uh, off the sea sometimes. Uh, and white noise is just basically when every single frequency is broadcasting at the same power. Um, it's totally random, basically. Uh, and uh, there's everything going on at once. Um, and it sits between that and something that we call brown or brownian noise. Uh, and, and that's from, from Robert Brown, who discovered Brownian uh, motion. And that's the opposite. That's predictable, correlated noise. Uh, and I, I, I could, that sounds like, just like, it's a low pass filter, it sounds like that. I'm not, not going to stand here doing a pink noise impersonation because that would be weird and surreal. You know, and just, it's just, and you know, that's not something you should ever find yourself doing. But I could do one. Anyway, uh, but basically, music uh, generated on the kind of uh, white noise algorithm, that's to say, you don't know what note's going to come next at all. Um, and unfortunately, I don't have a sound file to go with this, so you'll have to take my, uh, my word for it. This is a bit of white noise music at the start. Every note that follows every other one is completely random. You have no idea what's going to come up at all. It wanders all over the place and sounds uninteresting or even unpleasant. It sounds unpleasant to me because there's no relation. It's uncorrelated. Now, in the opposite extreme, you have brown noise music. It's random again, but every note takes its, uh, its position from the previous one. It's correlated to the previous note. And what happens is, after a while, it gets unbelievably predictable in the kind of uh, uh, music that it spits out. It's too correlated, and it's deathly boring. But when you get pink noise music, again, this is randomized, you know? But it's a combination of uncorrelated, random garbage, and stuff that's overly correlated. Uh, and uh, and it's just exactly somewhere between the two. And it, it produces something that actually sounds to us like plausible music. It does this weird combination of repetition and variation that a balance be recognized as uh, somewhere aesthetically pleasant. Um, when uh, uh, we hit on something pink, we find it beautiful. It corresponds to a, an ideal balance of predictable regularity and surprise. Um, and cuts large boring paragraph when he talks about paradigm because he's barely interested himself. Um, incidentally, there's, there's lots of different colours of noise. One of my favourite is something called green noise. Um, and green noise is what you get when you open the window. It's great. It's the, it's the green noise is the, is the noise that the earth makes. Uh, and it's a form of pink noise, uh, but there's a wee boost at 500 hertz, which is uh, C above middle C. It's a wee bit flat. So the earth's a wee bit flat. It's quite sweet. Um, but it's, um, it's a lovely sound if you produce it. Um, what I wanted to say was generative music programming of this sort, um, which is basically uh, the art of modulating uh, aleatoric random data with some grammatical rules, if you like, brown rules, to produce something that's pink, is quite close to producing something uh, resembling music now. It sort of reminds us that Bach's talent is computational, you know, as well as inspirational. Poetry is a much uh, more complicated business uh, because its parameters are far more numerous and its signs are too quickly uh, destabilized. Uh, but who would claim that that was because it captured any more of the human spirit than music does? Um, but I think, you know, one day we'll get there. Current sort of attempts at generative poetry are really daft. And they just spit out things like, as I think I may have showed you on Tuesday, you know, um, 
you know, the fatuous banana spliced my windmill with the monkey. And you go, oh, interesting. Um, but uh, so far, it's not actually poetry. But I do believe we might get there. There's no reason to suppose that we wouldn't do. And it'd be good because it'd mean we could enter a new age of classicism and get rid of the, the author, which would please me enormously um, as an editor. Uh, but I suppose the obvious thing to point out, of course, is that such a program will have to produce a good after-dinner speech first, you know, and a good piece of journalism before it can um, Anyway, to get back on uh, paste, um, analysis of these static forms in nature, like sort of, a, I mean, you know, the outline of a landscape or a mountain, uh, really have Brownian patterns, but that's fine. But find Brownian noise acceptable when things are static. But when things start to move, uh, it, we, we find it really kind of rather abhorrent. You know, in these natural dynamic processes, um, we find pink noise dominating. So it appears to be this characteristic si uh, signature of complex systems, that's to say those that display kind of non-random variation. The, the content of our experience as humans seems to hover around the pink noise mark. So this sensory music is really just a product of the nervous system. So, I mean, what comes in at the, the edge of your fingers and in your retina and in your ears is something close to white noise. And what your nervous system does is it filters it down to something pink. It extracts, in other words, the material that's useful uh, and not noise from the environment such as is appropriate to our own evolutionary development. So we work on a, a, on a pink noise principle. So it's just what your nervous system does. Um, so the time-based dynamic medium of music is dominated this by this pattern of regularity and variation. And I think that poetry does the same thing. Um, I don't see any reason to uh, suppose not. Um, so I guess I'm asking you if you, if you buy this at all. Um, would it be possible to think of poetry in terms of brown, white, and pink? Um, the best poetry is nothing so easily measurable, of course, as pitch length, you know, and, and uh, uh, pitch and, uh, and length, of course. But I think if we were able to accurately measure things like the relationship between concrete and abstract speech, light and dense lines, pattern of metrical agreement and disagreement, expectation, syntactic disjunction, you know, we would see in the poems we regard as canonical something like pink noise, the same kind of equilibrium between predictability and surprise, pattern variation, familiar and unfamiliar. The one at the top is patient strong. I think we'll agree this is brown as hell. Um, it's the same old self that will awake on New Year's Day with all its faults and feelings, but at least my heart can play that God will give the battle self the opportunity to work out something better in the year that is the day. Um, so that's that one. So I, that's just gone. That's fine. You know, it's just like that's all some folk need. Now, don't you know? Some of the people who enjoy patient stronger, the people who are dearest to me in the, the world. You know, I don't think that's not putting them down for liking it. But I don't think it's any cop as art. Um, again, at the other extreme, from Barrett Wharton, who's a, who's a language poet, a language poet, as they say. Um, <laughs> Uh, you have a, 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 a really a bunch of uncorrelated uh, details, you know. Uh, so this is close to white noise, and the reason I think it's white noise is because all the images are broadcasting on the same power. There's no sense of background and foreground here, you know, uh, uh, as you would require. There's no sense of anything uh, predictable. It's a series, a predictable series of unpredictable events. It's still predictable. Um, but horses for courses, love and let live. That's fine. Uh, my own preference is for something I hear is, uh, I'm trying here, is delightfully pink, which is, uh, uh, Emily, the, uh, the beautiful and sexy as hell uh, poem. I started early to my dog, which if you don't know, please uh, uh, check it out. Um, the lovely predictability of the ballad form and the absolute subversion of that expectation in every single line that she writes, you know, um, as a profound John, don't eat your heart out. That is my opinion of Emily. Um, so this Brownian poetry is really the rehearsal uh, you know, of what the reader already knows to be the case. So that doesn't surprise. And the white stuff is all unfamiliar familiarity and novelty and discontinuity. And it does nothing but surprise. Uh, but I think if our aim is epiphany, the poem has to demonstrate a move uh, from the known to the unknown, which we might define here as making an uncorrelated leap from a correlated position, as I think Dickinson does in every line. Um, you can only do so by actually making it. Um, 
while it might be uh, as many, uh, you know, we might be as many years from a model of the poem as we are for the brain, I think certain aspects of the poetic art are more easily described than other art forms. Uh, and just as music, music is amenable to a fairly systematic description, I think so is the musical poetry. And it's in lyric uh, that we see our pink balance. Poetry, I think, naturally refines the music of language to something close to a pink ideal, something correlated, modulated by something variable. Uh, and just by lyric, I just mean poetry's use of sound. Nothing more controversial than that. Um, but I think in its use of that, it finds its boldest and most instantly recognisable emblem uh, and it takes the strange of a, a t form of a very odd default, um, uh, English lyric at least, uh, which is a balance of variation within repetition, composed of shifting vowel and repeated consonant, of airy music and stop-heavy music. Um, if there's any folk that still come back for more next week, I might talk about this at some length. But I'll finish up by just giving a sort of a, a rough adumbration of what I, I, I mean by that. Um, uh, and I suppose I'm just about to reveal one of those hellish trade secrets that I should really shut up about, and it's to do with the lyric formula. Um, it's basically don't use all the sounds you have available at once. Don't broadcast one-point noise. Um, one of the awful things you learn working in editing, I've been in this gig for 50, 60 months, good Jesus, 17 years now, um, is that after a while you can hold a poem like that and go, rubbish, you know, yeah, look at it. You just can hold it there. Um, and... Uh, <laughs> More often than not, sometimes there are, there are obvious things, which you can see that it's scented, yeah? or you can see that it's in some gothic font, or money has, money has fallen from it, is another way to talk. Uh, or a picture of someone's boyfriend or dog, um, or it's been written in crayon. Uh, or potpourri is my favourite one, I get, I get a lot of that, it just falls out of it. Um, Sorry, um, what was the hell was I speaking of? Um, it's, you can tell that it's unlikely to have any music because any two or three line passage appears to contain all the letters of the alphabet. Now you can tell it just at the corner of your eye. Um, now if it does that, it means it hasn't united its, its music. Um, the phenomenon of music is spoken about in poetry as if it were mysterious. It's not. It's the same as music. It, it's not some ineffable thing that only my poetic intuition can define. It's like it's the patterning of sounds, you know, used in a kind of parallel way. Um, so that's how you can sort of tell uh, that a poem is unlikely to, to hold itself together as a musical composition. It may work in other ways. But if you can see every sound in a three-line passage, the chances are, on your look, it's going to fall like white noise. Similarly, I have to say, and this is my argument against Hopkins, it sounds like brown noise to me. That's why I don't like it. You know, I'm not surprised when he alliterates again. You know? Um, so I'd like to be occasionally. I like my uh, assonances to be uh, saliences, you know, against the pattern of vowel variation. I like my rhymes to operate in the same way. Um, anyway, the errors are often made, I think, because uh, language music itself isn't inconsiderable, you know, and people think that just things are beautiful, but when they're often just paying attention to the beautiful sound of English, which is beautiful. Um, in everyday speech, given a choice of synonyms, I think we always have an unconscious uh, preference for the most harmonious or contextually lyric sound that you need to make strong sense. You know, if you think about anything in the language that strikes you as a felicitous or memorable phrase, yeah, advertising slogan with a cliche, 99 times out of 100, you'll find some patterning in its sound. Um, the effect is naturally strengthened the more considered of speech. And as I'll show you in a moment, uh, speech writers alliterate and acidate almost helplessly. Um, written prose betrays a, a higher degree of lyric patterning, again, and poetry, of course, even more so. Um, this self-conscious foregrounding, I think, of patterning and prose is what often leads to a diagnosis of what we might call poetic prose. It just turns out to be heavily musically patterned. But even random series of words demonstrate a musical coherence simply by virtue of any one language having a closed uh, phonemic system, um, a finite set of sounds that can combine. This is the musicality that we divine in languages that we don't know. Um, uh, but are, uh, we're slow to acknowledge this music in our own sometimes. Um, but each language uses only a fraction of the available phonemes uh, uh, that are kicking about globally. I think there are about 200-odd phonemes in use. English does well. It has about 50. Uh, we might pity the, the, the native Hawaiian speaker, because in Hawaii there are only 13. Um, but on the other hand, uh, a poet would sensibly envy them 
Because it can't be a single sentence that you say in Hawaiian. It doesn't sound poetic. It doesn't come out like Hopkins. It must sound absolutely beautiful. This is nothing to Paraha. This is my favorite one I thought I'd throw in here, which is the language of the Paraha and Amazons, which is 10. Look at this. So here's Amazing. Nobody understands it. Nobody knows what to speak about anything. One guy claims to. It's a beautiful thing to listen to. And the reason it's amazing to listen to it is because we've got so little in the way of phonemes, they've dumped uh, an awful lot of their, uh, their uh, uh, semantic um, sense making into the international prosody. So it's, it's semitonal, but it's crazy tonal um, to the extent that uh, they can just sing things to each other. So they can whistle sentences to each other. Because um, they just use the tones and replace the words entirely, so they hum and whistle to each other, and you know it's one of the extraordinary ones. Um, so people, you know, they may think, well, that's just oversimplified, but people always make their own sophisticated conversations somewhere. Um, nonetheless, uh, even without uh, salient sound effects like rhyme and assonance and alliteration, we do have a strong sense that something else is going on in poetry. And I think I will talk about this more next week. Beside the mere intrinsic musicality of the lovely. English language, and indeed there is in poetry. In English poetry, uh, the feeling that writing is musical is usually because it exhibits two kinds of phonetic bands. Um, between them, they exhibit this pattern of repetition and variation, similarity and difference, that pink noise motif of being banging on about that the human brain craves in everything, if it's simultaneously going to make both connections and distinctions. The first, as I say, is this careful variation of stressed vowel sounds. You know, almost conscientious variation of vowel sounds. If you read any passage of Heaney or Yeats or Dickinson, they go E O E R R E O. Really, almost like, and if you just say the vowels, it's like chewing a big toffee in a fine point. I think, really, very odd thing. And then, when the assonance of rhyme hits, it jumps out against that foreground. The second thing is consonantal patterning. Um, this delicate uh, patterning of the consonantal sounds, often under the, uh, uh, sub, uh, the, 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 the conscious line of the the listener, they're not aware of this pattern because it's not obvious, it's not alliterative or anything like that. What it does is music. And what music does is it softens the reader up to be told anything and to believe it. If you sing it, they will believe it, no matter how weird. If it's really strange, rhyme it and people just believe it. Um, this is really what we mean by lyric. Um, and on that bombshell, I'll wind up with just an example of the uh, the kind of lyricism that we instinctively reach for in our most desperate hours, uh, whether in poetry or in poetry's sister art, uh, which is whining self-justification. Um, <laughs> as uh, Bill Clinton said so movingly uh, of the Monica Lewinsky affair, painful as the condemnation of the Congress would be, but would pale in the comparison to the consequences of the pain. I have caused my family. There is no greater agony. Now, I won't pull the cheap stunt here of lineating this just to prove the point, but it's just the words are fairly astonishing in the, in the coherence of the patterning here, as you can see. The riff rather virtuosically, uh, you know, around the, the guttural stops, K and G, uh, and also the labials, uh, the P, P and, and B. And there's a couple of whining nasals in there, and that's about the whole show. Really amazing piece of, uh, of, uh, of, uh, of lyric. But it was not done, you may be sure, just to impress us with his lyric prowess. Um, it was done, as with all good poems, to get one past us, um, to, to march something into our unconscious, you know, past our guards and our senses, who are lying in the same smiling, sweet stupor as uh, Cerberus did when Orpheus crept past him, I think, and, and lulled the, uh, the, the hell dog to sleep with his lyre. That's enough of that for today.